in part 77 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Preparing for the Purpose. I do believe now that is a lame title. Uh, however, I want to I kind of connect in and make it very personal. This is something that I've wrestled with in my life over the last couple of years, and maybe you're in this season as well. Um, have you felt like there was a time when things were clear and you felt the call of God and you felt fired up and it's almost like he gave you visions of where he was taking you little glimpses where you would kind of say, Lord, really, do you want me to do that? I mean, that's kind of a big deal for me, Lord. I don't know. Sure. Have you ever felt like God gave you that call and then it just went away? Where you feel like, man, I'm in a desert place, I'm in a wilderness place, I feel like I was headed so heavily towards this direction, somehow I got absolutely sidetracked. Now, we're years later, Lord, I don't have the energy to do it. I don't even have the desire to do it. And God, maybe I didn't even hear you right. Maybe I was completely missing it. Or maybe, Lord, I screwed it up. Maybe I've done too many bad things in my life that I hijacked your plans. Or, or maybe, God, it's, it's just this idea that the enemy saw that I was going to do something with you, and maybe he wrecked it. If you have ever felt like, Lord, I don't think that I'm fulfilling your heart for me, and God, I just doubt a lot that it's ever going to be the case. If you've struggled with that recently, would you just raise your hand? I'm, that, I'm in that place, okay? All right, so quite a few of you. I want you to know, and the rest of you, I want you to lock this message into your heart. I have an encouraging message for you. I want to let you know something very, very powerful, and it is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It is this. God will orchestrate you. Now, let's be very clear. You are not responsible to carry out all the plans of God. He is God. We are not. God will orchestrate you to be positioned to do what you were designed to do. You're going to say, well, you know what, Lance, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the case. I mean, you don't know what's happened. I have two stories for you very quickly. The first story begins with a young man. Let's say he's 13, 14 years old. And he gets visions and dreams that he's going to be a leader. He doesn't know how big of a leader. It seems rather significant in his dream. But he certainly knows that he will be leading his family, of which he is the youngest. He decides to share that vision with his family. His family can't handle it. They're so dysfunctional. They're so messed up that his brothers sell him into slavery. You know the story of Joseph, right? They sell him into slavery, absolute rejection from your family of origin. That's going to mess with your head. That's going to screw you up, and that's a lot of therapy. Joseph is sold out of his land. Now, to a Jew, land mattered. I can guarantee you that every dream he ever had had to do with being in the land of Israel. Now he's not in the land of Israel, and he's not going to go back. He is removed out of his land. He's sold like meat on the market. And he's sold out, and he ends up in Egypt, not a place he wanted to be. And there, he gave up all dreams. Lord, I must have missed you. I must not have been listening right. I must not have heard it. So obviously, all those things were shattered, and he was a mess. And all of a sudden, as he begins to serve his master, God begins to bring him success. For the first time, hope is rekindled in his heart, and he's thinking, oh, Okay, well, I didn't see that coming, but all right. And he begins to hope all over again. 
You remember what happens? A woman wrongfully accuses him of rape and he's put in prison. Talk about getting your legs kicked out from under you. And once again, every hope is dashed and he is reconvinced that he did not hear the Lord rightly. He is now in a dungeon. As a matter of fact, he even has a possible connection with a guy who's going to get him out of jail. And that guy bails on him. Everyone has abandoned him. Everyone's walked away from him. But even in the jail, he begins to see God move. He gets out and he ends up in Pharaoh's household in a special way where he's risen to authority. And finally, he begins to see the rulership. He has no idea what has to do with his family. His family hurt is so bad he just wants to block them out and pretend like they don't exist and then one day they show up they show up in front of him they're all bowing down and he's thinking that was the vision i didn't think it was going to come like this i don't want it i don't want to talk to them i don't want to engage with them i don't want anything to do with this and he has a really hard time wrestling through it god leads him through it and because of that young man the way that god had his plans Not only did he save his family from famine, but it was because of him that God used the Hebrews to come together and be in a collective area so they could multiply and become a mighty nation. It was because of that young man that 400 years later, Moses could lead out possibly a million Jews into the promised land. I need you to understand none of that was how he pictured it. And it looked like he was taking a million steps backwards. So I don't know what is going on in your life or how you think your plans got hijacked and you thought you heard from God and maybe not. I just want you to know God knows how to do complicated. Let me give you another story. I was listening to a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Anybody familiar with Tim Keller's stuff? Super smart guy. I think he's smarter than me, so don't listen to him. I was listening to uh, Redeemer Presbyterian. I was listening to some podcasts from him, and he brought up something that I hadn't really been tracking on. He said this. He said, when Adam had some kids, Adam knew God. Adam knew what God wanted. Adam was uh, the one that could call upon the name of the Lord. But then he had two kids, and he had one good kid and one bad kid. Do you remember that? Cain and Abel. And then the good kid that wanted to call on the name of the Lord and understood, well, he got murdered and got shut down. So God gave him another kid named Seth. And I don't know if you remember this, but it says, and they began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, that became the line or the lineage by which God was connected to mankind. That line of Seth ran all the way down as the world got darker. The world got so dark, if you remember, that God decided to destroy everyone in a flood. Seth's line came all the way down into a man by the name of Noah. Noah had three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They got on the ark, and that lineage moved through, but two of those boys went their own way. One held on to it, and that was Shem. As you trace his lineage down, we get all the way down to a man by the name of Abraham. At that moment, the line that called upon the name of God spiritually had died. In Joshua chapter 24, it says that Abraham, his brothers, he had two brothers, and his dad were polytheistic. They were no longer following God. They believed in many gods, and the whole line spiritually died. It was then that God did a resurrection. He called out Abraham personally and said, I'm your God. You are going to follow me. And in that moment, the line was resurrected, and it says, and Abraham began to call on the name of God, just like Seth did. 
and he brought it back alive. There was only one problem with that. The guy that God selected could not have any children. Sarah was barren. It was physically the end of the line. There was no way that it would carry on, so it was going to die with Abraham. And as things got further and further, and he got older and older, and things became more impossible, you know the story. He tried it on his own, messed things up. And then at the age of 99, he has the promised child. And spiritually and physically, the line reopens. And then God tells him to kill him. Why? This is not how he planned this. Take him up on the altar and kill him. Why? Because I told you to. But he's the promised one. I know what I'm doing. Kill him. My own son, yes. And he goes up to sacrifice his son and God brings in the redemption of a ram. And that line carries on through. Here's my point. God knows how to do complicated. I know that your life sure took a derail. I understand it jumped the tracks. I understand you probably crashed. I understand that there's a lot of weird stuff that has happened. I just need you to understand that your sin can't defy the plans of God. I want you to understand that the enemy cannot hijack the plans of God. He doesn't have that right. Our God is so good at what he does. He knows so so brilliantly how to work upstream. He puts things into the water before you ever even imagine it. He knows how to blast through dead ends. He knows how to jump over obstacles. God will get done what God needs to get done. Amen? The reason why I bring this up is we're going to read a few short stories by which you're going to watch the orchestration of God happen in the most magnificent way. You may not link these stories together, but what I want you to watch is the orchestration of it all behind the scenes. I want you to see that we're going to continually run into impossible situations, and God will hop them every time. We are in a combo passage with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's go ahead and throw it up on the screen as we begin. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that's the stuff we've been talking about the last five times we were together about him talking about the end of the world on the Mount of Olives and teaching his disciples a bunch of things. After he had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know, in other words, you need to know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, already three to four times, he has already told them he's going to die. They didn't want to think about that. They couldn't imagine how him dying was a good plan. They couldn't understand how that was going to orchestrate the kingdom coming. And he said, it's better that I die. I need you to know I'm going to die. But this is the first time it became clear that it was going to be through crucifixion. Immediately, they would have known the problem with this plan. The problem with the plan is crucifixion is not... A Jewish death. It's a Roman death. How are you going to get a Jew crucified? Why are the Romans going to care? Jesus, why would they even know him? He's not leading an insurrection. He's not leading a rebellion. He shouldn't even be on their radar. How in the world, in a few short days, is Rome going to kill their Lord? That doesn't make sense. Not only that, but to be crucified is because you're a criminal. This is the sinless Lamb of God who's never done anything wrong. How are you going to get a perfect sinless Lamb 
on a criminal's death. That's not going to work. Everything about this plan is absolutely impossible. But in the Old Testament says they will look upon the one they pierced. Crucifixion was already in the cards. It's going to happen. Just watch how he orchestrates it. That's the brilliant part. It moves on. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Okay, let me explain what we're talking about. There used to be two festivals. There was a major festival called the Passover. There was a minor festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because they were so close in proximity, one would happen, followed by the second one. Eventually, they ran together. People started calling them all the same thing. They would talk about them synonymously. They would refer to the whole situation as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They talk about the whole thing as the Passover. But let's be very clear. The Passover is one day. The 14th of Nisan. That is on the Jewish calendar. There is a very specific day where they celebrate two very specific things. Number one, they hearken back to a time of Moses when they were the Jews in slavery for 400 years God comes in snaps the neck of the Egyptian Empire by what by launching down ten plagues one more severe than the other all the way until we get to the death of the firstborn Do you remember that that God said I'm gonna send the angel of death throughout the camp the firstborn son will die in every household that is not covered by the blood of the lamb do you remember this they were to slaughter a lamb paint the blood over the door frame as a symbol of connection to God they were doing so in faith they didn't know it was going to work they're just trusting God and so they put their faith in the blood of the lamb to cover their household and so when the angel of death came in he saw the blood of the lamb and passed over that household and went on to the next are we all seeing the jesus tie in here yeah jesus dies on the cross his blood is shed on the cross as we put our faith in jesus christ on the cross the wrath of god and death come and see us it's on our hearts he jumps over us and moves on to the next person now that's a whole different message now passover was about them getting out and they had to get out fast so they celebrated it by having lamb right because that was the whole you just killed one might as well eat it right so you got lamb and then they wanted some bread with it because a good meal always has carbs right okay so you have to have carbs the unleavened bread they gotta go they gotta go they gotta go at any time god is going to have us be set free and we better be ready to run you don't wait for yeast to have the bread rise and all that stuff they're like man let's go bare bones basic Let's just grab some unleavened bread. We got this. We got some other things. Let's just go. So ever after, they celebrated Passover with a lot of memory stuff from that incident. But that wasn't the only reason. The celebration of Passover was also the celebration of the beginning of the barley year. You would have your first harvest of barley, but you weren't allowed to make bread with it. You weren't allowed to sell it in the stores until Passover. Why? Because you were doing an offering before God, according to Leviticus, that you take a sheaf of barley, wave it before God as an offering. And once God has acknowledged that he's the one that brought the harvest, he will bring any future harvest. Then the stores can open. Everyone can make their bread and barley is now allowed to be sold. So there's an agricultural significance to it. There is a spiritual significance to it. That's Passover. It's a big deal. It's one of the three compulsory 
feasts that if you're within 15 miles and you're an adult male Jew at 15 miles of Jerusalem, you have to come into the city and celebrate it. It's mandatory. The only other two are Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is a massive deal. Following that day is a seven-day-long minor festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Altogether, it's eight days. We got it? That's what's going on here. So it says, again, it was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. When is this all occurring? Because what we're about to find is that Jesus is going to have one last supper with his, with his friends, and he's going to die the next day. Whatever date this is will tell us the date that Jesus dies. Unfortunately, there seems to be a challenge depending on which gospel you read. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have it on one day. If you read John, he backs it up a day before. Now, this has been one of the greatest challenges in New Testament scholarship for the last 2,000 years. Here's all I want to tell you. You can read my notes if you're interested in that type of stuff, and you're going to find out how it all reconciles and figures out. But here's the thing. How each one of them reconcile time and how we reconcile time are very, very different. Let me just give you one simple idea. When we talk about Thursday, when does Thursday begin for us? We always think about it beginning at midnight, and then it carries on to the next midnight. That is not how they do it. You have to understand that they start there at sunset, and then it goes to the next sunset. So, what? Two of their days are in one of our days, because they're splitting it out different. When you look at all the time frames and how things are put, and how Jesus would have organized it, all of this reconciles. But it just seems weird when you first read it. I don't want to get bogged down, so let's keep moving on. It says, then the chief priests, who are they? Well, they're the high priest and his buddies. If you remember, Moses had a brother by the name of Aaron. God selected Moses to be leader guy. Aaron was to be priest guy. And all his lineage would be priest. It used to be that you could only be a priest if you were born a priest. But once Rome took over Israel in Jesus' day, by his time, There was no more lines of priests. They started putting in the high priest for political reasons. As a matter of fact, they began to switch out rather rapidly. In the hundred years before Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70, there were 28 high priests. That's a lot. But there was one in particular that led for a really long time. He was super brilliant at how to manage Rome and the Jews, and his name was Joseph Caiaphas. He is in charge during Jesus' day. He grabs his team, all the priests come together, and the scribes, the guys that know the Old Testament backward and forward, they are the lawyers or the biblical guys. And he calls together the elders of the people. Those are the older, wiser leaders of the Jews. And they all gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. What were they there for? Well, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and were seeking how to put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people, for they feared the people. What are they worried about? They know full well who runs the show. Who runs the show over Israel? Rome. Don't tick off Rome. They know that. 
the problem is their nation is not at peace. The Jews do not get along. The Jews hate the Romans. And we have all types of factions and revolutionaries and uprising. The north doesn't even like the south. You got guys from Nazareth, which is like the troublemaking city where Jesus was from. You got those guys coming down and causing problems in the south. You got the zealots who are ready to murder anybody for nationalistic reasons. You got all kinds of chaos. You got guys calling themselves the Messiah and rising up. Well, now they have this Jesus guy. He's causing all kinds of problems. And if Rome finds out about this and they have one more significant uprising, they're going to come in and shut everything down. Well, nobody wants to lose their job. They realize very well that if you are an official, the people can shut you down. One way or another, they can shut you down. So he doesn't want any of that problem. They don't want it public. They want it private. They want to come in, sneaky, take Jesus out, don't cause any waves. What's the problem with that plan? It's not God's plan. God wants it public. So what's going to happen? He's going to make it go public. doesn't matter what they plan. Because the enemy can't change the plan of God. Watch this piece. This is a trip. Look at the next line. What's it say? And Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. What? That total left turn, right? We were all heading one direction. These guys were all in some secret location, plotting the secret death of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Satan enters into one of Jesus's 12 disciples. That's weird. Because do you understand that not only does God have all kinds of plans, Satan has all kinds of plans. Satan's thinking, man, there's no better time to get a hold of God and to take out things he loves than when the Son of God takes on flesh, adds on humanity, and now he's vulnerable. Man, I can get in. I got a guy in his own crew with a big come possess me sign over his heart. This is like taking candy from a baby. Man, this is easy. Now, was that door open? Of course it was. Was it open? Did God know that? Of course he did. Jesus says later on, I lost none except the one doomed to destruction. We always knew that's how it was going to go. That was a bait. And Satan fell into the trap. Satan thought he was one ahead and that he was going to kill the Son of God. The problem is he accidentally brought out the redemption of the world. You understand my point? All right. God's faster, smarter, more brilliant. He does complicated. So, sure enough, Satan enters into Judas called Iscariot. Do you know what Iscariot means? It means he is from the city of Kirioth. Why is that important? 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Is that important? You would have missed this. I missed it. He's the only non-northerner in the entire group. Everyone else is from Galilee, not him. Is that why he's the outsider? Is that why he's the extra guy? Why is it different for him that he grew up in the south and somehow connected in the north? All the rest of the guys grew up where Jesus grew up. Does that play into it? I don't know, but it is weird. It is unusual that you got one guy from out of town and he ends up being the betrayer. I don't know how it plays in. I find it fascinating. It says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away to the chief priests and officers he initiated and how he might betray Jesus to them. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? That sounds a little bit like greed, does it not? It sounds a little bit like you're trying to take advantage of a situation. We already know he's a thief, yeah? The Bible already said that he's the treasurer of the crew. Jesus knew that and put him in charge anyway. He was slipping his hand into the bag and stealing money from the ministry. Oh, it's a really good thing that doesn't happen today. 
it says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And when they heard it, they were glad. Really? Of course they were glad. They were trying to figure out some stealth way. All of a sudden, ding dong. Yes? Well, I'd like to hand him over quietly. Way! That's super weird. This is going very well. I think God's on our side. Remember, they think that Jesus is not the right guy. So they think they're doing everything in God's power. This is not true. Uh, and it says they were glad and agreed and promised to give him money, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. How much is that? We have no idea. There's no classification of what type of silver. Could be a month's wages. Could be six months' wages. Let me just ask you this. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? You just sold out the Son of God. For how much? Does it matter? I don't think it was a huge amount. So he consented, and from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Hey, you guys want to grab him when no one else knows? Man, I know the guy's entire agenda. I've been living with him for three years. I'll tell you where he's going to be. I'll tell you how, where we pray and how we hang out and what our secret spots are. Man, I got all that. I can throw him under the bus in a heartbeat. This is not hard for me. So let me ask you, why did he do it? There's four main guesses in history as to why he did it. Perhaps it's a mixture of these. One of them is that it's straight out money. That he's going, man, I'm getting a lot of money. I see this guy. He keeps saying he's going to die. I'm going to somehow profit off his death. Uh, and so I'm going to get more cash. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's disillusionment and bitterness, right? Maybe he started out going, man, I think this guy is the Messiah. And then he realizes he's not doing anything to go after Rome. He's going to end up being kind of weak soft. I don't want this. You know what? Forget you. I thought you were somebody else. And he discarded him. Maybe it was jealousy and ambition. Maybe he realized after joining the team, he wasn't going to be as popular and as great as he thought he was going to be. So he decided to bail. Some people have a really weird view. They say maybe he didn't mean wrong. Maybe he wanted Jesus to force his hand to go after Rome and create this coming of the kingdom. I think that's giving Judas way too much credit. We do know that whatever it was, after he betrayed Jesus, he regretted it. We do know that. He ends up throwing the money back and doesn't keep it anyway. So he gained nothing but the damnation of his soul. Then came the day of unleavened bread, it says, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, saying, go into the city to a certain man and prepare the Passover there for us so that we may eat it. What does it mean to prepare the Passover? Well, it's rather complicated. He sent two guys to do it, said, guys, I need a meal for 13. Me and you 12, let's all eat together. We have a very special meal. Let's do it Passover style. Whether or not it was on the day of Passover or the evening before, and they didn't have lamb, we have no idea. It all depends on the timing of it. There's a lot of Passover meals that are only done with bread and not with lamb. But let's say they did. Here's what preparations mean so that you can picture practically what they were sent to go do. The first thing you have to do is 11 double check. Y'all know what leaven is? It's yeast. The way that it works is that Jews prep for Passover about a month in advance. They start eliminating all the yeast or leaven from their house. Why? Because the Jews reasoned it this way. 
Yeast is a fermentation process. Fermentation is kind of a putrefaction process, which is actually a rottenness process, which is actually means corruption, and it can also be used as a symbolism for sin. If that is the case, I do not want to celebrate God with sin in my house. Therefore, I'm going to go through and clean the entire thing out. The last day before Passover, they did prayers and did one final scan, and then they would pray at the end saying, my house is clean from leaven. You would imagine that if Peter and John are going to go into somebody's house, they're going to do a leaven double check. There's no way they're walking in and letting their king eat in a place in the presence of sin. So they would go through and examine it. Now they got to get the lamb ready. Let's say they do use lamb. Here's how the lamb has to work. You have to select out an unblemished, perfect lamb. You have to take it before the priests in Jerusalem because you're supposed to eat it in Jerusalem. The priests have a courtyard in the fancy temple where they line up and it's a slaughterhouse. Every worshiper must slaughter their own lamb as their own sacrifice, but not more than two people. Why did Jesus send two guys? If it was about the lamb, only two are allowed to go. Two, you then go up, and then the lamb's throat is slit, and then what happens is the priests have to catch the blood in gold and silver bowls. They then catch that, and they do a bucket brigade up to the altar. They hand theirs to the next guy, the next guy, next guy, all the way up. He splashes it out on the altar of God. That is the offering. They then flay the lamb, leave the head, the tail, all that stuff on it. They take out the entrails and the fat, burn that up to God, give you back the lamb carcass. You are then to go take it as it is and put it on a pomegranate wood spit and roast it over a fire. It's not allowed to touch pans, not allowed to touch anything. You then roast it over a fire with all of the stuff on it. And then you eat it as your Passover supper. That's a lot of work, is it not? But that's not all. Then, as you go through it, you realize they also need to make the unleavened bread. I don't even want to get into that process. It's bread. <laughs> then you've got to have a bowl of salt water. Why? Because it reminds you of the tears shed in Egypt and the waters of the Red Sea that they passed through. Then you've got to gather the bitter herbs together. Things like horseradish, chicory, endive, lettuce, whorehound. All this is to, once again, remind of the bitterness of slavery. Then you've got to make the paste to dip your bread in and sometimes use cinnamon sticks. That is a mixture of apples, dates, pomegranates, and nuts. And those along with the sticks remind you of the bricks and the straw that were made uh, together with the clay. Then you had to have the wine ready, four cups of wine to be drank at different intervals during the meal. Three parts wine, two parts water, according to the four promises of Exodus 6. In other words, there's stuff to do. They go into the city and they're supposed to get that all ready. And so they said to him, all right, you just said that we're going to go to a certain man. Lord, that is ambiguous. Feeling very uh, clueless here. So they asked him, they said, where will you have us prepare it? We need to kind of know a location. He said to them, what? Seriously, check this out. When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house wherever that he enters and say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare it there for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, did just as Jesus had directed them and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
change. Is this a prearranged signal or is this the father downloading supernatural information to the son? What do you think the answer is? Yes. Okay. Here's why. Clearly, Jesus had a prearranged plan with a guy in the city. How did he do that? Why didn't he mention his name? Because Judas would have hijacked the whole plan. Then he wouldn't have had the Last Supper. Jesus isn't going to mention the guy's name because Judas would have called in the authorities. He knew what he needed to do and when he needed to get busted. And so he keeps it on the down low. Now, he says, I want you to go in. There's a certain guy. I already know him. I told him earlier, we're going to have Passover at your place. So this Passover, when the whole city gets jammed, estimates run that normal population is 50,000 Jews. In Passover, it jumps five times that amount, goes to 250,000 Jews. The rule is if somebody asks you if they can have Passover at your place, you're supposed to say yes. So how at the last day do we have a big room open and ready? Well, because Jesus said, I'm going to have Passover at your place. The guy already knows it, knows the code. And you go, well, it's all prearranged. No, hold on. How are they supposed to know which house it is if they don't know the guy's name? Oh, they're supposed to see a guy carrying water. What, is that prearranged? The guy just carries water around for 16 hours a day going, man, where are these guys? I've been carrying this stupid jar for like days now and nobody's coming up to me. No, that is a supernatural download from the father. He gave them a clue and said, guys, you're going to see a guy carrying water. How would you even pick a guy out carrying water? Because guys don't carry water. There are very clear roles, defined roles in that culture. Women carry water. Men carry wine and wineskins. They don't carry water. That was a woman's responsibility and job. Therefore, all the women would go to the watering places together and didn't have to mix with men. The only reason that a man would ever carry water is if there's not a woman in his house. Why wouldn't there be a woman in his house in a culture that does arranged marriages and when something happens, they get remarried immediately? There's always a woman in the house. Who wouldn't have a woman in their house that would own something that large that they would have a massive upper room where 13 people can hang out? A wealthy guy without a woman in his house? What's going on here? That doesn't sound right. Some people believe that he belonged to the Essene sect concept, which was basically like a monastery. It was all dudes. Well, when you only have guys that are a part of it, they go carry the water. There are no women allowed. There's no women to be a part of it. That's just a guess. It could have been that there was a death in the house, whatever. But this guy, for whatever reason, was carrying water, and they immediately marked him out, and they followed him, went into the house, gave the code word, boom, now it's all getting set up, and Judas has no idea. God knows how to do complicated. You understand what I'm saying? All right. So what do we close with this? I don't know. Did your sin completely derail the plans of God? Because what I remember is when David sinned, God used that sin to bring about the lineage of the Messiah. Whoops. So what was it? Did you give up hope? I bet you did. Did God? I don't think so. When I was 14 years old, I was washing my hands at a restaurant and my brother-in-law was there. And he said, Lance, God is going to do great things through you. And he began to tell me a few different things. It seemed somewhat prophetic to me as a young man. And then my mind began to track with God and say, God, what did he mean? And as I began to pray through those things throughout the years, God gave me all kinds of what I believe is prophetic ideas about what I would do. 
60% of those still have not come to pass. I'm 43 years old. How long do you want to hang on to stuff? Was I wrong? Did I miss it? Or are there still things that God wants to do? Here's what I must not do. Try to force the hand of God. If I try to force the hand of God and jump ahead of him, I'm going to become a bad guy. We don't need more bad guys. Our job is to humble ourselves and wait for the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do. I don't need to make it happen. I don't need to try to manufacture it. I don't need to somehow create some ministry idea. It may be a good idea, but if it's not God's idea, it's a terrible idea. Do you know what I mean? And therefore, the same thing goes according to you. I understand that a lot of the things that maybe were on your heart, maybe they're ministry-based, maybe they're just relationship-based, whatever it is, maybe God laid some things on your heart. If indeed you did hear him right, if indeed he conveyed to you what he was going to bring about, he has not forgotten. I know it's complicated. I know it's backwards. Some of you feel like you're in a dungeon. Some of you feel like other people hijacked your whole system. Some of you think that the enemy wrecked it. I'm going to tell you right now, none of those things stand up against God. And I want your hope to be high. I want your faith to be strong. I want you to get... Now, there's there's plans and dreams that God has given me back then that I don't even want to do anymore. I don't have the strength for it. I don't have the energy for it. I don't even care anymore. But God cares. And so when the time comes, he will give me the strength, he will give me the passion, he will give me the fire. And if not, he'll give me the faithfulness to carry it out. Let me explain something to you. There are some of us in this room that are not little kids. And what I want you to understand is if you think that somehow God is done by giving you downloads or giving you directives or giving you plans to do, let me remind you how old Abraham was when he got rolling. Let me remind you how it went with Moses. Let me remind you that until you're out of this world, you're here for a purpose. And therefore, like Moses, you are always usable by God. And I believe in an ever increasing manner every year. I think that your power is stronger now than it ever was when you were younger. And therefore, God is still breathing his life into you with ministry dreams and ideas and vision. And you are desperately needed in the kingdom of God. That means that everyone here. God only has you here for a reason. If there was no reason, you would not be here. Therefore, he is still carrying on and advancing the kingdom through you. Do not give up. You will reap a blessing if you do not give up, the Bible says. Therefore, you're going to get to see a lot of things. Now, some things need to happen through your life that you're not going to see in your lifetime. That's something we are not comfortable with. But I want you to remember that Abraham never got to see his lineage in the promised land. But it made a difference. God is working through every single one of you. Please don't give up. Please make sure that every day your eyes are attentive to the Father, your head is lifted up, and you say, Father, what now? Because I'll tell you, the dreams that he has are greater than anything you can imagine. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your consistency and your faithfulness and your power to be able to blast through obstacles and to create the impossible. 
to become possible. God, I pray right now that you would raise our hope quotient, that you would increase our faith, that you would allow us to be fired up, God, of knowing that you are not done with us, that there is more to do, that there is more kingdom advancing, that there is more intimacy with you, that there is more connection to be had, that there is more downloads to receive, that there is more lives to be changed, that there are more neighbors to meet, that there is more healing to happen, that there is more word to connect with, that there is more understanding to have of your nature. So God, we want to worship you. We want to be there for you. So right now, in this moment of clarity, we collectively as a family surrender our will to yours and we say, yes, God, whatever you want. God, carry us forth from this place with power and strength. We're about to go out and be the church. And so, Lord, fill us up, anoint us, and empower us for what we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day.